Hey there, this is Ryan Johnson, uh, writer and director of Looper, and welcome to the in-theater commentary track thing. Uh, so this is an odd thing that we do. I, I did this for Brothers Bloom, and a couple of people on Twitter have been asking if I'd do it again, so we decided to put it out there. The idea behind this is it's a commentary track um, that you download and you put on your you know, iPod or iPhone or iPod iPhone-like device, your Zune uh, and take to the theater with you, and then in a second here, I'm going to tell you when to pause the recording. Uh, and then when the sync point that I think would be good is at the beginning of the movie, the TriStar logo, that big Pegasus that's coming towards you with the wings folding out. The moment that ends, the moment it goes, uh, that that logo goes away unpause the recording. So right after the Pegasus logo. Uh, and that should be sunk up and you should get a live commentary track in, in the theater. A um, couple of quick uh, things before we start, probably obvious, but I'll just say them. First of all, please do not do this on your first viewing of the movie. Uh, that's uh, maybe a little bit of a ploy to get your extra theater-going dollars, but regardless, please uh, don't, this, uh, it will spoil it entirely, so see it clean at least once first. Uh, and then also, uh, I would suggest doing some kind of either in-ear headphones or over-the-ear headphones so that you're not blasting your ears out in order to hear me over the rest of the uh, movie, and also so that you're not uh, disturbing the people around you with, with um, sound coming out of your headphones. You don't want to uh, piss anybody off. And uh, and lastly, obviously with an iPhone or iPod, if you can sync it up and just have some way of hitting pause with it like in your pocket just so you don't have a glowing screen out at the beginning of the of the movie, um, that, would be, that would be awesome. Uh, I'm excited to do this with you guys. It's going to be fun. Uh, so uh, drive safely to the theater. And again, right when that TriStar logo finishes, uh, go ahead and, and unpause it. Go ahead and pause this recording. Now. Hello. Welcome to Looper. Uh, nice seat. Nicely chosen. Uh, cool. So, here we go. Uh, Film District. Let me talk about these companies that helped us make this. Film District, uh, Peter Schlesel, who's at Film District, um, they're the ones who picked it up for distribution through Sony Endgame, which is a company run by Jim Stern, is the company that financed the movie. Uh, so those are the two. And DMG was our, our Chinese distributor who became a co-producer, which we'll talk about in a while. I wanted, at the, for this first shot, I wanted to give a nice long look at Joe's face. That was part of it. I also wanted to have kind of a anachronistic, kind of calm intro to the movie. Originally, uh, in my first draft of the script, the voiceover had started uh, had started before uh, before this. Like the voiceover kind of played over this about time travel, and then it paused at a certain point in the voiceover and then the the big bang happened here and it was actually um uh, a, a friend of mine who's a who's a film critic uh, uh mike d'angelo actually had read the script and gave me the note that it might be really cool and disorienting to start it without the voiceover just have that play out and then uh and then have it come in that kind of beautiful disorienting feeling this voiceover is, is quite old. Um, I wrote this script originally as a three-page uh, short about 10 years ago. I wrote it a few years before we made Brick. Yeah. And uh, 
Yeah, so it was during this phase where we were just trying to get Brick made, and that was kind of all we were thinking about. My friend Steve Yedlin, who shot this movie, he's my cinematographer, um, he and I, we we realized that we were just spending all of our time thinking about getting money for for Brick, and it was kind of driving us batty. And so uh, I said, let's just start making shorts again. Let's just start making short films again. And uh, we made one called The Psychology of Dream Analysis, which you can find online. And uh, I wrote this one called Looper, and uh, it was this voiceover, and you kind of saw in montage kind of this guy's life. And then the voiceover continued, and uh, when his older self showed up and ran, the short was just a foot chase between the two of them across the city. Um, And that short just kind of sat in a drawer for a while. That that cane right there, that sugar cane, that's – we were shooting off-season. Tracy Toms right there, the great Tracy Toms. And so the sugar cane was all dead in in Louisiana. And so we had these amazing greensmen who actually propped up that sugar cane and painted it green. And then we did some digital augmentation to make the sugar cane – to make it all work. Some terrific – digital matte paintings in uh, all the city sequences by a company called Atomic Fiction, who's based up in, in Northern California. Um, it's it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a lot tougher to get realistic, gritty looking city stuff, to get stuff that actually looks like a real gutted building and, and to pull it back and make it look more and more real. I think it's actually, in the digital age, it's actually tougher to go for that kind of realism than it is to do big shiny buildings. And um, Atomic Fiction just just knocked it out of the park. They were great. Um, this was our first day of shooting. This was the very first thing we shot was this all this stuff with Joe alone in his apartment. And it was also the first time we had all seen Joe with the makeup on doing the Bruce mannerisms and the Bruce voice and checking his hairline there, which is a, a detail Joe added in. Uh, and, and the whole crew, I think, on this first day, you could feel everybody's kind of lean forward in their seats and realize, oh, this is how this is going to work. Because people had seen the makeup, but just seeing the makeup, I don't know if you really make the connection. It's really Joe's performance. Uh, The Miata, which I realized after we made the movie, is a gag from MacGruber. I actually saw MacGruber after we made this film. We were in post-production. I thought, I said, I heard this movie is really funny, and it was. And it has the exact same (laughs) Miata joke in it. (laughs) I'm very proud, actually, that we share a Miata gag with MacGruber. Bang. Uh, so yeah, it, uh, this is Paul Dano, obviously. That big red mural on the left was a very distinct thing. Originally, there was a we we that was meant for you to track the outside of this location because originally we came back to it several times, but in the course of cutting the film, we ended up cutting out the scenes where we we came back to this location. Originally, Kid Blue like kind of tracks Joe back here after he runs and. Um, finds that he had taken Seth's uh, slat bike, uh, but that ended up getting cut. This is about half of this scene. Originally, the scene was about twice this length, but it was all one continuous shot driving along the side of the Miata here. Uh, this is all down O'Keefe uh, Street in uh, um, New Orleans, and uh, it's all practical stuff on the back with some a couple of little digital things, but originally that was just one long shot driving along with them, and there was a lot of concern about Joe driving and acting but he managed it. Uh, Bria Grant, right there in her, in her, uh, in her Where's Waldo cameo. 
And you can see my mom in a second. Not her, not her, not her. No, her, right there. That was my mom, ladies and gentlemen. Yay. Uh, those shots of the girls outside the club and that kind of um, stripping the glamour away and getting up to just like a close-up of their slightly frightened, and this is my dad, um, their slightly frightened, are we going to get in faces? That was something I held on to in the cutting that felt uh, felt important to me. Yeah, that's my dad who plays Big Craig. I, I cast him in a movie, in the movie uh, Getting Shot by Bruce Willis. Uh, so he basically, um, he owes me. <laughs> it was a really cool day. Piper, looking gorgeous. Uh, this scene originally came later. We did a lot of shuffling and a lot of trimming to the first act of the movie. It's probably where we spent the lion's share of, uh, you know, of our editing time was was trying to get this first act really cooking, and a lot of that meant cutting and reordering and reshuffling until it really felt like we were um, breezing through this stuff. Uh, that's a practical quarter on a on a string that we've just painted out. We I, I wanted it was really important to me for all this TK stuff to actually have real objects that were on strings and just to do wire removal as opposed to creating CG objects. I feel like I don't know if something's floating, you're going to pay so much attention to it uh, that it's uh, it, it's just something that you're you're going to be looking so closely at it. Uh, I didn't want to be backed into a corner where we we're creating CG objects, and if they didn't work, then we were kind of stuck. So we always had the practical option, even if I said, well, if it looks bad, we'll paint it out, but we ended up using using all of them, actually. Uh, this was a power plant in New Orleans that we shot at. The interior of this is also the, the place where they put Bruce into the time machine. And all this voice, this voiceover, additionally, was was kind of straight out of the short film. Uh, at some point, I'm going to put the short film on, or the short uh, script. I'm sorry, online uh, for people to read. I want to wait a bit because it does actually have the same ending. It doesn't have Sarah or Sid, but it has the thing where he does what he does at the end. Uh, that was passing by real quick in that scene. You could see uh, my cousin Adam, who for years has complained that, or not complained. I've, I've given him crap because for years he uh he, he didn't come out to to be in brick in the stoner scene and so i said well I'll, I'll put you in the drug scene in this movie this shot we actually that spinning shot steve yedlin kind of came up with a way to do that we shot that full frame we used not anamorphic but actually a full frame uh lens for it spherical lens uh, and then we digitally cropped it out and spun it digitally so we weren't actually spinning the camera in that it was actually a, a digital move um, just to have the most amount of control and to uh, and to not drive ourselves insane this is kind of a day in the life seeing what happens uh, just kind of the and the cue that Nathan Johnson did for this song is really, really nice. It's uh, Nathan's score. The way that he kind of approached it was he, we knew that we wanted a big sounding score, like an action movie score, but we wanted something that sounded a little different. So he he actually uh, he went in. He went out to New Orleans when we were shooting with a with a field recorder. He gathered all these real world sounds, uh, and then he basically digitally manipulated them to turn them into kind of the rhythm and backing track. And he's got a couple 
video diaries you can find online that kind of document the process. But and all of this, like this this sequence, there's bits from it that were originally whole scenes, and this whole montage originally went elsewhere. There was just a lot of shuffling around. Uh, at some point. Uh, I'll, I'll also just, as I've done for Brick and Bloom, I'll put the script of the film online. So if anyone's actually curious to dig into it, you can uh, you can see you can see what we were doing, and what we changed. Uh, this is some really nice work by Steve Yedlin, our, our cinematographer. Steve is um, one of my best friends since film school, and uh, he shot Brick and Bloom, and and nearly everything I've ever shot, I've worked with Steve on. And uh, I love how dark he let this go um, and how uh, he was willing to just we, – we talk a lot about being able to let certain things go to the place where it's kind of dark on dark. And you can just see uh, – there's, a, there's a, some stuff in, uh, um, in Lost Highway that we always reference between each other, between ourselves, that some stuff where Lynch just lets it go so dark that you're seeing kind of grayish forms against dark. And uh, – I love being able to push stuff that far if it makes sense in the context of the of the shot. Um, this notion of having the of having this the door open the the fridge door open uh, was something that I really liked in terms of the lighting source of this scene, and it also allowed us to have this beautiful lens flare behind Joe that you'll see in a second. Um, this this was actually the the extra who was a, a, such a nice man who was this guy underneath the hood. I told him to sing something, and I told him it didn't matter what it was. And uh, what he ended, I just said you have to know it really well and be able to sing it over and over. And he ended up singing this. I, I think it was a uh, an LSU fight song. <laughs> and uh, basically, for the rest of the shoot, the whole crew had that had that damn song stuck in our heads. Um, it was just like a little goofy tune. Uh, I'm not going to sing it for legal reasons, but uh, believe me, it was it was annoying. There's that lens flare. So that kind of streaky blue lens flare that's going across. That's we, we shot in a format called anamorphic, and uh, we shot on film. We shot on 35, and anamorphic means you know the negative air, the negative for 35 film is is square, and with an, with uh, with regular uh, 35, which is like a one eight five kind of rectangular aspect ratio. You crop off the top and bottom of the square negative, uh, in order to get that get that shape. With anamorphic, you use the entire square negative, but the lenses are not spherical. The lenses are uh, kind of squished, so it basically squeezes this wide image into a square frame. If you actually look at just the square frame of an anamorphic frame, it, it looks uh, squeezed. It looks um, tremendously squeezed. Everyone's super thin and tall and skinny. And, and then the projector lens unsqueezes it again. Um, so one side effect of that is those streaky flares. The reason when you see flares like that and anamorphic flares, they look like lines going across the screen. It's It's like that blue one right there it's a side effect of this lens squishing the thing down. Uh, and so the flare is actually a regular flare that's compressed, but then when the projector unsqueezes it, it stretches it out into, into what you're seeing there. And it, it creates, I think, a really, a really nice, cool effect that reminds me of, uh, of early Spielberg movies that, um, that I just really like. 
when used in in semi semi moderation like that little thumbs up paul really cracked me up during the whole shoot i, f I find paul just a lot funnier than <laughs> uh than i than i think most people do uh, in the movie uh and kid blue so originally we introduced no this is noah segan my friend noah segan playing kid blue noah and Joe were in Brick together. That's how I first met both of them. And we've all stayed really good friends since then. And uh, some beautiful work by Atomic Fiction right there. So Noah, uh, originally his character was introduced earlier in some of those club scenes, but I decided to hold him off to here. I decided to wait to introduce him and, until he actually had a purpose to come into the scene with. Um, Noah's about to do some uh, gun spinning here. This gun that he's got, it's a real gun. It's something that exists in the real world. It's kind of a novelty gun. It's kind of a silly thing, but it's it's real. It's like an eight-pound gun that um, is just massive. And Noah took a lot of time and energy uh, learning how to spin that thing and really kind of had this huge callus on his finger after months of practicing. And he got it to where it's just really skillful what he can do with it. And then... Of course, in fitting with the character, there was one take where he flubs up, and and I put that take in the movie because I thought it was really funny. So I'm sorry, Noah. He's actually incredibly skilled with that gun. Uh, this was a moment we finessed quite a bit to try and get the timing of it right, and the sound, that little yelp that he's about to do when he gets hit was something we added in post to kind of help accentuate the moment. Um, right here. Jeff Daniels. This set was odd. I had this really specific idea of this offset door, and so we built this set, and it took a lot of explaining. It's kind of supposed to be this room that was not meant to be this, but then ends up kind of bridging these two these two areas. Uh, I had first seen Joe and Jeff work together in uh, Scott Frank's great movie, uh, The Lookout, and Jeff kind of had that badass sort of uh, that badass sort of demeanor, and it didn't seem like a big leap to me that he would that he would be a crime boss. Um, he seems someone who who could easily just be intimidating, and uh, I also love what he's wearing. The notion is that he he never leaves this lair. That's kind of his. This is both his uh, kingdom and his prison. He kind of never leaves this underground lair, and so he just dresses for comfort, um, partly because of. It's one of the stipulations of his job, uh, the notion being that his, you know, he needs to kind of stay down here uh, out of sight so he doesn't run into the younger version of himself out there somewhere. Unless the younger version is Kid Blue. Whoa. Is it? I don't know. Uh, that's one of the theories that has pleased me to no end. You can see a hammer on the desk there. And I'll, I'll be talking more, but that's a gag that we set up here that we never end up paying off. I guess it does pay off with, with uh, uh, when he smashes Noah's hand, but originally there was actually – he does this, this thing about you think we're going to smash your hand with a hammer. I'm going to tell you right now we're not going to do that. And originally later in the scene, there was a moment where Joe's eyes caught the hammer, and there was an awkward moment between the both of them as he sees this hammer on the table. And then Jeff says that's – 
there for something later. It's a bad coincidence. Don't worry about it. Uh, and it was a thing that I thought was really funny in the script, and it just it uh, it just got lost in the cutting of the scene, I guess. So I take a sip of coffee. I really just love watching watching Jeff and Joe in the scene. I should probably shut up so you can watch it. I like that safe back behind him. Ed Vero was our production designer, um, and I was just really lucky to have worked with him. Ed started as an illustrator for Spielberg. Uh, he started working on Raiders and E.T., and Ed is actually in Raiders. Um, in the shot where uh, the, the submarine is diving, there's that little quick montage, and he's one of the sub uh, – like. Uh, people in the submarine, one of the Germans, like on an intercom shouting. So you can pause it and see Ed Vero in Raiders. I told Jeff I wanted him shaggy and he showed up just like full beard, which made me really, really happy. So this, this shot, it's interesting. This is something with anamorphic lenses. This is a really wide lens, and we're right up on Joe's face. And um, it's something where if you do that with spherical lenses, you end up getting a very distorted effect. But this was a nice side effect that I discovered when we were shooting with anamorphic. Because of the way that anamorphic lenses are, you can get away with this, and it doesn't feel too freaky. It just kind of pierces his face out. It, it feels very three-dimensional. And so I, once I discovered this, I ended up doing it um, I ended up doing it quite a bit. I ended up uh, using it as kind of exclamation marks and using it to really kind of punch out whatever's supposed to be happening on the screen for some critical moments, um, which is fun. This is the first time I've worked with anamorphic. We shot Bloom was in this aspect ratio, but it was super 35, um, which, uh, which means it wasn't squeezed. We just did, uh, we cropped in on it basically. The, the whole switch to China, which I'll talk about in a bit was, it was all worth it. If nothing else, uh, for that joke, which always gets a, gets a good laugh in theater. I hope it didn't play poorly in the theater you're at. Uh, we cut a joke version of the scene, my editor and I, where they sit down together at the beginning of the scene, and uh, they do that long pause, and then just as Jeff's about to speak for the first time, Joe says, floor safe under the rug, and gives him up. And we laughed ourselves silly in the edit room. It's the sort of thing that happens. Um, this scene... This old Seth scene, it was it was a thing that in the script was something that everybody always pointed to as as a really effective like it, it felt like a really great scene in the script and um, really memorable. And then we shot it, and in the edit room, uh, Bob Doucet, uh, my editor, and I, we were looking at it. We're like, God, does this? Are we going to cut this? Does this belong in the movie? Because it. It was first of all, it was hard to tell how effective it was before we had all the effects in. Uh, when we we're just looking at like you know 
uh, little green screen dots on his fingers and on his nose, but also we realize narratively it is a little bit of a cul-de-sac. This is a character that we never see again, and we're spending quite a bit of time here kind of establishing his fate. But uh, you can also – you can see on the left there, it's too late now, but his pinky disappears in this shot if you watch – the next time you see it in the theater, uh, if you watch, his, his pinky goes up there and it blinks away really quick. It's the one disappearance we actually see. So, uh, so yeah, we thought, I, I just said, does this belong in the film or should we cut it? And what we realized was, uh, you know, it sets up the stakes. And when we realized also how effective it was proven to be for audiences, it, it uh, made sense to keep it. Uh his nose, that's my hands in his, uh, right there, sorry, in his pant leg. That's my cameo. And we mixed in a little bit of Dano's screaming in there too to uh, to kind of bring them closer together. This was one of the most uh, like complicated effect shots in the whole thing because we had to bridge these two shots where a stunt driver drove it in, but then the actor came out. And then this is a lot of really amazing digital work um, that was done on this shot. Uh, so his nose was digital. There was no way around it. We had uh, we just had to create a digital nose, and the digital artist did a fantastic job with it. And we just kept pushing them for more and more texture. I basically pushed them to make it look like a prosthetic piece with more and more makeup on it, um, so that it looked like a physical object um, and not kind of translucent the way skin usually is, which kind of betrays, I think, more of a um, more of a funky funky digital thing. I believe it was hydraulics that did uh, did these shots. Gold watch. And then Piper as Susie. Uh, this Richard and Linda Thompson song, I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight, was something that I really fought to keep in the movie. This and and Carmelita by Warren Zevon, which is playing in the diner, um, was something that I I, I really push for. Um, there's also, but there's a just a tiny little detail. The backdrop behind Susie and him is uh, supposed to be reminiscent, kind of of the next to last shot in the movie. That kind of landscape. But anyway. Um, I tried cutting the scene with other songs put in. We realized how relatively expensive uh, the song was going to be, and uh, it, it just nothing worked like this song did for some reason. Um, and I kind of just tossed this song in as a. But it's one of those things where it, immediately when it was in there, it just fit, um, and we had to we had to keep it. Uh, it's another example of those lens flares I was talking about earlier. Um, the end of this scene was originally going to be Joe breaking down and, and crying kind of when he – the full weight of – he really has nobody that he can kind of emotionally connect to. And, and when Susie shuts him down kind of the same way that he shut Seth down because um, Susie is doing her job the same way Joe is just doing her job. This is not part of her job, and so she's not interested in this. Originally, the full weight of that hit him, and Joe did a beautiful performance where he just broke down and cried. And uh, we is one of those things where he just realized it, it didn't it didn't fit. It was better just playing this moment, uh, playing this moment cold. Piper, and then she's just watching the clock. 
remember there being some discussion about whether to put music over this part to fill it out, but I, I really liked this playing as dry as it does, um, having a little bit of a calm before the storm, especially because I knew we were going to slam right into uh, the movie taking off like right after this, basically. Pacing-wise, it felt nice to have a little bit of a breath here. Those are actually Joe's hands, I believe. That's a luxury whenever you can get the actor to do the performance of their own hands in a shot. That's not something you can always do. And uh, and Emily, I think, did it for the final shot where she's stroking his, his hair. Uh, it was really important for, for critical stuff. That uh, squiggly vapor trail up there was something we added in post in order to create a little signpost for this scene um, just to make sure that it was it was completely clear that we're coming back to the same moment later. Uh, there's an interesting thing timeline here wise also where, you know, technically if you diagram the whole thing out, it should, the first time this happens, it should be what we see the second time where he shows up with the hood over his head and Joe shoots him. Um, you know, literally that should happen. He should go to China and then when he's makes the break in the timeline and is sent back, that's when this version of it should happen. The reason I realized we couldn't do it that way because that is because that would essentially make our main character that we've been following from the beginning older Joe. And it was important to me that the main character of the piece was young Joe because that's where we were originally we're gonna kinda of bring it all around to. So we did so we did it as written, which is this thing where we see it this way first, kind of from Joe's perspective. And then later on, we're going to backtrack and see the way that the timeline went with, uh, with older Joe. This was one of those great things where we were just scrambling to get this shot while the sun was just right there on the horizon. And it was one of those wonderful things on set where everyone, all this frenetic energy, let's go, we can set this up. And, and, then you, uh, and then you grab it and then you just feel like this beautiful sense of exhaustion. <laughs> like, wow, we got that just in time. Bob and I, our editor, would always joke that on that phone we should have a thing that said uh, 27 missed calls from Abe. It would have been funny. Uh, the helicopters, I remember watching the Blade Runner DVD extras and seeing some of the original comps of the flying cars before they put in those lens flares, before they put in those spotlights, and remembering how, how bad it looked, how you could just see that it was an optical and then seeing it after the lens flares and realizing how much the lens flares forgave. And so not that the helicopter work on our thing was bad, but they were going to be digital helicopters. And so that was one thing I, I, I pushed for from the beginning um, is, uh, is, is to use those lens flares to, uh, uh, to, kind of, to kind of shield ourselves a little bit, I guess. Uh, this was a set that um, Ed Vero built. This was one of our bigger sets in the movie because we just had so much business. And with this whole stunt thing with the guy going into the uh, trap door, it made sense to build it. Bob would always joke that that was a cross, that door handle, and that there was <laughs> cross symbolism put, put through the whole movie. Uh, so... Obviously, that's then the blunderbuss shot from old Joe that he's hearing right there. 
And then what's happening here, so that's a stuntman that goes in there and that slammed past him. And then Joe actually comes back and slams that down. And we had uh, Lex, our bravest stuntman in the world, actually put his hand up there and let Joe slam it down. And there were two steel spikes to stop the door right above his hand. And I mean, forget jumping out of four-story windows or whatever. That was like the bravest thing I've ever seen a stuntman do. Uh Tremendous stunt work right here. And then this shot coming up here, I didn't want to green screen this, so this is practical right here. He's actually, Joe is actually being lowered down on strings from the top of the building, and we're following him down in real time with the camera on a crane. And then Nathan did that little piece of music in there to kind of show some kind of transition. And then we're back here. One little timeline thing that has been raised is why is he also late in this one and uh the answer if he didn't if presumably he didn't fight back or he unsuccessfully fought back in this one why would he still be late uh the answer is he's a little less late in this one but he's still late because they were late getting to the time machine they were late because of the whole thing with accidentally killing the wife there you go Uh, there is going to be this Chinese sequence. So th th there's a longer version of it that we just did the commentary track for, for the deleted scenes on the DVD, which is kind of interesting to see. But, um, but I guess the story with this, the main story is this was originally going to be set in Paris. Uh, we were originally going to shoot this in Paris, uh, and, uh, well, not shoot it in Paris. It was originally set in Paris, but we were going to have to fake Paris in New Orleans. And, um, our Chinese distributor stepped up and said, look, if you can make this, if it makes sense, as Joe's parents in the background, uh, he said, if it makes sense for us to be in Shanghai, uh, we can make it a co-production and actually bring you over to shoot in Shanghai. Um, and so that made a lot of sense to me. And story-wise, it made perfect sense that he would go to go to China. So, so we decided to change it. Um, and we didn't change anything about the sequence except the fact that it's in China. Um, not a word was actually changed except for the uh, except for the location slug lines. Um, the year markers here were a very late addition. The scene actually played without them until very late in the cutting process, and it, it was always kind of a problematic scene. The sequence was something that there was always kind of discussion about possibly figuring out a way to even cut it. But I always felt like we could get it there and make it work, and uh, one of the big keys turned out to be putting those graphic year markers so that you kind of get a sense of um, get a sense of what uh, you know where we're at and it was one of those things where really we had worked on this thing so much I was just so ready to say this is the sequence it's going in the movie and it's one of those examples where just nodding, not letting yourself off the hook and saying there must be some way to make it work a little bit better it can kind of disciplining yourself in the cutting process to do that can you can stumble on something like that even late in the game that can help kind of um, bring it all together and help define it uh, Summer who's a Chinese actress here she's just she's really really tremendous in the film there's a deleted scene which again again be on the DVD but where she has a dialogue scene with Bruce which is just really beautiful that um, uh, just didn't end up having a place in the movie um, and then I realized when I was putting these years in when you get to year 30, there's something foreboding about it because you, you know that 30-year thing in your head and you know what's happening. And once I realized that, 
and I thought oh, this could this could this could really work. A little bit of the rainmaker destruction there. The other th big thing that I did to this sequence fairly late in the game was originally you saw the wife's death in this sequence, uh, and deciding to not show that here, but to save it for when they're in the diner, did two things. It kind of helped streamline this part of it a little bit, uh, and it also helped break up that diner scene a little bit, which was really um, ended up being really important for both of them. And that was something that uh, was actually a, a note from Jim Stern from Endgame, uh, who, who first suggested that, and uh, it was a it was a really good idea. So this is a big uh, abandoned um, power plant in New Orleans. It was a beautiful filthy dangerous location and so so much texture to it and uh yeah you can see all the depth there and and the rainmakers men are the only people in the whole movie who wear hats and so my notion was always that this is the divergent point in the timeline this is the moment where he snaps it and creates kind of this whole other branch kind of moment of uh, moment of passion uh, this cue that Nathan did here it, it was very it was nearly unchanged from the very first version of it he kind of sent me a temp of this early in the cutting process uh, the time machine itself the design of it is based on the gadget at that they uh, the first atomic bomb that they tested at the Trinity site um, uh, in in New Mexico, I believe it was, and uh, I actually I always had an image of it in my head from uh, from this computer game called Trinity. There was a cartoon included in that game. You probably can't hear me because it's really loud right now. There, it's quiet again. And then here, the idea being that instead of seeing it from Joe's adrenaline perspective, you see it, what actually kind of, <laughs> you see a disconnected version, and he actually just kind of gets sucker punched. <laughs> yeah. That thing where Joe, where he's being sent back in the machine and where it's going bright, that was entirely practical. We, um, uh, we opened up the aperture, we started shaking the camera, and we actually unseated the lens. And so our camera assistant, Bob Hall, uh, started actually pulling the lens off of the camera, and that's what gave it that effect uh, at the end. Uh, in, that pre in, the, in the convenience store, you could see solar panels for cars being sold, uh, just like a little little touch. That lens flare right there was a happy accident, that little halo. So this is the, the notion here being that he's, he's remembering, he's, he's like digging into his memories and trying to see where Joe is right now. And the idea with the memory thing is that he's not like constantly watching him like on TV. He can choose to look in and see him whenever he wants, and if there's something especially violent or frightening that happens to Joe, that will sometimes spike through and, and get his attention. Here's our little Back to the Future 2 nod.
most of the cars in this, as I realize, that's whenever I watch a sci-fi movie now that's kind of medium budget, the first thing I look at is how they handled the cars because it's the big expensive thing that you just have to figure out how to deal with. And the the way that we decided to work with it is we said, okay, well, if everything's kind of broken down, the cars will be kind of like the Yank tanks in Cuba. They'll kind of be uh, cars from 30 years ago that have had to be kind of kept alive and, and uh, new engines kind of jammed into them, solar panels. Uh this that's coming up was a really fun shot. This actually has a bit of digital manipulation in it because there's like three stuntmen or two stuntmen involved in this. There's the guy up there. There's another guy who is waiting down at the bottom to drop. And then when we swing back up here, he's now doing what's called a hot swap. He's actually switching places with Joe right here so that now it's actually Joe lying on the top. And then we digitally added the guy falling after the fact. So that's the kind of shot where it's really fun to pull off on set and everyone kind of gives a little cheer when you get a good take. I'm, I'm, I really, I really love kid blue <laughs> i love what noah segan did with this role it's uh it's that kind of riding the line between sympathetic and fuck up and and bad guy which i think is really interesting uh bob hall is our first ac and what the first ac that's a first assistant camera um, and that doesn't mean he assists the cameraman. That means the first AC is the guy who's in charge of pulling focus mainly. That's like his main job. He's kind of in charge of the camera in general, but f focus pulling is the main thing. And Bob is – he is just one of the all-time greats. We are really lucky to have him on this job. And uh, he, it's an art form, pulling focus, uh, because you're basically – you're you know – it's not like you're looking through any sort of thing where you have the focus. You measure it out, and you're kind of judging by eye based on feet and inches how far how far the person is and turning this little knob on the side of the camera to keep it there. And oftentimes, and especially in this film, we were shooting wide open, which means that uh, there wasn't much uh, there wasn't much room for error. And Bob it just had this amazing ability to hit the focus in a lot of really critical positions. I really like this touch that was in a library, and all the books are uh, are, are, are plasticed up, are, are wrapped up with plastic. Digital age, man. And again, that cane is. Uh, pretty much like artificial like it's kind of it's kind of just a wall of cane that that our guys uh our amazing greensmen put up there and originally there was much more business with kid blue that'll be in the deleted scenes about joe that's supposed to be seth's uh, uh slat bike paul dano's slat bike that joe went to his place and got 
and that's the way the kid blue finds them here is by tracking that set that uh, slack bike here so this scene was uh both incredibly fun and incredibly difficult we shot this i think we had three days to shoot all of this including the dialogue and the escape so essentially we had like two days for the dialogue and we had three cameras and my favorite statistic is we ended up shooting more film just for this scene than we did for the entirety of brick uh we ended up burning more film uh just because there was so much ground to cover and we just had multiple angles on it and uh, uh, and just kept doing it. Also, the scene was originally about twice this length. Um, as originally cut, the first cut of the scene, there was a lot more dialogue in it. There was a whole thing where, where Bruce goes into this speech about why French is his favorite language and uh, there was more kind of like back and forth uh, kind of... Uh, back and forth sparring between them at the beginning of it um, and it was all good stuff but it was just playing too long and so we ended up just slicing it back um, there was also some some more uh, exposition stuff about time travel or not really about time travel because Bruce Bruce's character doesn't really know how time travel works but more exposition about what exactly is happening in his head uh, and like originally the the straws line where he says we'll be here all day making diagrams with straws Originally, that was um, a setup for a gag where a minute later he's trying to explain something, and uh, he says uh, at the final moment, he goes, uh, all right, God damn it, hand me those, and he takes the straws and starts laying it out. But if you'll see, it's it, this is, again, it's in the de deleted scenes on the DVD. If you watch it, he's more explaining subjectively what's happening in his head than he is kind of bigger picture time travel stuff. So moments like that are, are why when Joe and I briefly discussed him playing both parts, uh, there's a, it was a very brief discussion before we did any casting at all. So before we were even thinking of Bruce, Joe was like, you know, um, what would it be like if we just aged me up and I, I played both parts? And I felt it was really important to have a, an actor who – to sit across from Joe who could actually stare Joe down and have the weight that Bruce has and, and earn moments like that. I just felt like there was something about that, that, uh, uh, that was really worth having. This was the bit where it originally went into a little bit more detail. But at the end of the day, it just ended up being kind of superfluous. The one bit of information that was in there that I, I do still wish was kind of in there was he, he does mention – he did originally mention that uh, the time machines are set to a fixed amount of time. And that's just like a little uh, a little world detail that if you're um, you know, a time travel nut like myself, it's nice to – it's nice to know that it's, it's just not totally necessary. That was that notion of it being messy was was one of was one of my like initial kind of takes on how I was going to approach time travel. Um, 
the idea that instead of it being kind of a mathematic one-to-one relation in terms of this happens, so that happens, that it would be much more organic. Because to me, that's the way the universe works. It's, you know, uh, the universe is, is a organic mechanism. And so it um, it's not a, uh, a finely tuned machine. There is a sense, there is kind of a certain amount of chaos and messiness to it. So especially with Joe's, old Joe's memories, when these paradoxes are created, my notion was that his memories would, would basically do their best to adjust to them. It would be kind of like a painful, cloudy process in his head. He would kind of be messed up all the time. Um, and that the universe kind of reacts to these time paradoxes the way that an organic body would react to uh, some kind of foreign element being like a virus being in it. It would kind of try and figure out what it was and do its best to to deal with it. work by Bruce there. So this is the bit that originally played in the China montage. And originally we were just going to do little flashback memories to it here to remind everybody, but it, it ended up being being a lot more effective to actually hold this moment off and see it in this emotional context. That was the other big thing is putting it up against Bruce's emotional performance here and giving it a lot more weight. Nathan's score in this part is so beautiful. And this really detailed work that both Bruce and, and Summer, the, what she's doing right here, it's really, really, really gorgeous stuff. Yeah, and we realized just having that moment play against that reaction from Bruce was really kind of helped emotionally drive it home a little bit better. This is all set up for our future TV series, The Rainmaker Chronicles. So when he mentions here synthetic jaw and, and, and mom shot, that's something where his memories are kind of already melding to the current timeline, sort of. Um, the, the, the current version of events that are setting themselves up are already informing informing his memories of uh, his memories of the quote unquote future. Uh, that's a shot that Jaron Prasant, our second unit guy, shot, and that was a really, <laughs> really awesome shot. So, in early drafts of the script. 
and she's growing living things. And in the early drafts of the script, uh, it, it wasn't kids that he was going after. In the very first draft of the script, it was just adults. And it was actually, I was, it was through some conversations with uh, two screenwriting friends of mine, Dan and Stacy Sheridan. Um, they're a husband and wife screenwriting team who are just in, two of the best people I know. And uh, they're, they're kind of a part of, you know, I think every writer has like a group of trusted friends that you, you have stuff out with. And I remember as in a conversation with them that, that this idea came up initially of, of having it be kids. And because so much of it hinged on that moral turn from the audience's point of view, when Bruce starts committing these acts, that seemed like the way to go with it. That moment of why don't you just let me look at, if you really want to save her, show me her picture which I think is a really critical moment in the scene, was actually something that we came up with in rehearsals. It was something where we felt like there was some tag on the scene that was missing. It feels like Joe's just having his lunch handed to him. He needs to at least start to turn the tables on Bruce at the end of it. And I think it's a really critical aspect of it because um, it gives you that first glimpse of he's not acting out of pure motivations. If he did want to just save her, then that's the answer. But he doesn't want to save her. He wants, he wants to keep her. Uh, Bruce and Joe had a lot of fun doing the that whole sequence where he's dragging him across. <laughs> Bruce was kind of showing Joe the ropes a little bit. Uh, this bit coming up here where he Joe sticks his gun in the ground, that was something that just happened. And <laughs> when it happened, I was like so excited. And then after we called cut, Everyone was like, oh, God, that was a great take, except the gun stuck in the ground, so we got to do it again. And I was like, no, that was, that was great. <laughs> Kid blew with his limp. So for that, we actually hoisted the bike up using wires, and we digitally added uh, in the, uh, the, the kickstand going up, going up on it. And enter Emily. My uh, my favorite statistic in all of film is that Han Solo doesn't show up in the first Star Wars until 45 minutes in. And that was something that I kept uh, citing with, with Emily's character. I felt like we do introduce her very late in the game and very suddenly, and obviously there's a very big intentional tonal break when it happens and it feels to me like she enters the story when she's you know when she's needed in the story um and if the whole movie is kind of setting up this moral choice for joe at the end the idea of having these two halves of the film uh feel as as distinct as possible and having sarah's world be something that um isn't integrated into the city, but is a place unto itself. Uh, that that seemed to make a lot of sense to me. This is something that uh, I think it was actually when we were shooting Bloom. Adrian Brody told me a friend of his did. Um, he uh, when he was quitting smoking, 
he missed the ritual of it. And so he would, whenever he wanted a cigarette, he wouldn't mime this. And that helped like scratch the itch a little bit. And so taking this long moment with Sarah to kind of this new character that we're bringing in late to the game to just kind of stare at this woman and wonder what's going on in her head and see this little ritual um, seemed really important to me. This POV shot that's coming up here, that's actually something I'm, Steve was really proud of because he built this oversized screen for us to shoot through so you could actually see the detail of that mesh because otherwise I would just get lost. And so that was actually like the size of a chain link fence, the thing that we were shooting through. I remember for this speech, I think I just kept telling Emily to, to Sam Jackson it up. I also like how that little bit of cane is sticking back at her. <laughs> like the cane's holding her, holding a gun on her too. Emily showed up to work uh, blonde and with this tan. This was all her idea. And Joe's is the more obvious physical transformation in the movie, but... Emily really underwent no less of one, and also her accent, which was just flawless. And uh, I think she told me she studied Chris Cooper movies in order to get that kind of Midwestern accent. This little wobbly thing that's about to happen here is just Bob Hall racking the focus back and forth. It's something that happens with that squeezing of anamorphic lenses. And so that's not a, any sort of post effect. That's actually literally just what happens whenever you do a focus rack with a with anamorphic lenses. And I just told Bob to rattle the thing back and forth and he was having so much fun. This is some great work from, from Noah here. Uh, originally, this scene had a back end to it, which is on the DVD where after Jeff nails him he was dragged out back in order to be shot and there's like this Miller's Crossing moment where he's begging the guy for his life and then no and then Kid Blue gets the upper hand on him and pulls a gun out of his uh out of his boot and shoots him uh the Gatman not Abe and uh it was really great awesome work by Noah but I, I realized in cutting it that dramatically it's all about these two guys and uh once you know, once Abe kicks him out and, and makes that break with him, the scene was dramatically over. Mean Jeff Daniels. I also like cutting it off here because the house kind of <laughs> looks like a face when it dissolves over his face. Uh, Steve Yedlin, again, our cinematographer, did some really nice work in the back there. Those are the that glow behind the cane. Those are lights that we had set up like half a mile away, these massive lights. 
and they just cut through that atmosphere out back in a really cool way and created again this kind of um a shape so that we could do kind of like dark on dark Emily, one of the earlier scenes that we shot with her was when she was chopping away with the axe. Uh, and that's actually something that's really hard to do. And we did it so many times that she really messed up her shoulder. And so anything like this where she was holding the shotgun up, it was just agony for her. And she was a real trooper. Here's Ponce, who was the actor who played uh, the hobo. He was just awesome. Uh, and originally we had a reverse shot of Sid here. Originally this is where we introduced Sid looking through the window, and he kind of receded back into the darkness. Uh, but we ended up just holding it off. That's some great puke work by Joe right there. It's actually very difficult to do. Uh, originally there was, there was more explanation from Emily here about... Um, about what the drug was. She kind of rattled off, you're withdrawing from a synthetic barbiturate and blah, 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 and it just felt really unnatural, and so we kind of parried it back while we were shooting it. Um, and there's also, originally after this, there was a scene where we see her driving his him out to dump him by the side of the highway and <laughs> leave him to die, and uh, she, she changes her mind and, and decides to keep him around. Um, and that'll, again, that'll be on the DVD, but... Uh, for it and the deleted scenes, but it, it's something we realized that in the cutting room that we could just hop over and you would realize that she had done that anyway. This is I I, I love this moment. This always gets a gets a good laugh. I really like it. Um, and uh, when we were doing it, Joe's like, you know, won't I look kind of infantile? Like just say, and I said, yeah, that's. <laughs> That's got that's kind of the point. This little kid is sort of uh, playing father to him a little bit. There's that lens flare again, and this is I think we were showing this. I referred to this as the ET shot. Uh, so this is another Jaron Prasant shot. This was second unit. I kind of set this up with him, but then he actually shot it, and um, it's just really well orchestrated. Uh, there's also, for for Brick fans, there was a little Brick Easter egg hidden in that shot that just happens. Did you see it? Ooh. Uh, this was in that same power plant that we shot uh, all that other stuff in. Um, and it, again, was just, just filthy, beautiful, disgusting location. Uh, and Bruce played this scene so well that uh, there was actually originally a later scene where they had kind of the same emotional content of this, where he... he you kind of couldn't go through with killing these kids, and so he was going to throw his gun away, and he sees his wife's memories disappearing. And it felt a little redundant after this scene because we had seen him struggling here, and he played it so well that it it sold it, and we realized we didn't really need uh, didn't really need the second scene.
Temple of Doom. There's something about that that reminds me of the Temple of Doom poster, except with Sid. I love our, our rocket ships there. Um, Pierce Gagnon, the actor who plays Sid, I'll talk about more in a little bit, but he was five years old when we shot this movie, and he's just a extraordinary actor. Um, lives in Atlanta, and uh, I should also say is a wonderful kid with a great mom. He's, <laughs> he's, he's going to be just fine. He will not turn into the Rainmaker in real life. You can see the blunderbuss shells uh, there on the cot. You can't see them that well, but they're these really cool uh, kind of plastic massive shells that, uh, that go into the blunderbuss. So this farm was, we built this barn, but we found this farmhouse, and this was a really big find because we were shooting in Louisiana, and there just aren't farmhouses like this in Louisiana. This is this is very much kind of like a, uh, you know, uh, kind of like a Midwestern-style farmhouse. And uh, Louisiana, it's, 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 it's just much different in terms of, uh, terms of the architecture of these, of these houses out in the country. And so... This was a massive find. We got this house, and so we went in, and we uh, we kind of added on a little to the porch, and we built a uh, staircase inside of it. But mostly, the house is kind of what you see is what it is. It was a great day when our locations guys found that. There was a, a little additional scene that originally went here. The location he's in right there is like a park. And originally there was a little scene where Bruce kind of did some reconnaissance and kind of went up and talked to the kid, to Daniel, and um, made sure it was actually him. And it was this creepy little scene that will – again, it will be on the DVD. But it it, uh, it was something where it was actually a little too creepy. <laughs> it just felt unnecessary. Uh, the idea being, I'll give a little bit of explanation there, I guess, but I think it's, I think it, 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 it's in the movie, the notion that Sarah had a life in the city, that he, she basically was part of like that clubbing scene in the city and loopers are not secrets. Like Susie knows about loopers and people in the club kind of know who loopers are. It's, uh, uh, it's not supposed to be kind of like a secret thing in the world. I forget exactly what we did. We did some finessing to this point. This was a delicate sequence going back and forth between these, and this is one of uh, – there's a lot of exposition that's happening here. This is one of the few one character explaining something to another character scenes we have in the movie um, and figuring out exactly when to go to this stuff with the kid and how to play this. This was you know, from the script phase. The way that we 
put this film together was we didn't actually make it with a studio. We made it with the, that company, Endgame, and they had financed the Brothers Bloom. And so it's not like we had to pitch it or sell it to a studio or anything like that until we had made the film. It, we, we basically just gave the script to Jim Stern, and he, he said, yeah, I wanted to do this. Um, even so, there was a lot of discussion about <laughs> this moment <laughs> where – where Bruce Willis shoots a child. There was there was just a lot of talk about it, and um, rightly so. It was something that I wanted to really make sure that I was being challenged significantly on and that I could back up its reason for being there and that I could explain exactly how it was going to work because it's a moment that I really wanted to take seriously. You can see here, incidentally, I just it felt important to me to pack as much green into this into this shot as possible. There is... A color thing going on with uh, the life of green versus the the dead of the city. So this moment, it was it was something where you know it, it's 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 incredibly delicate. It's something where I didn't you can't as a filmmaker just say yes. It's supposed to shock the audience. Fuck you. I think you have to really take it seriously and make sure that a it's earned uh, and b it's it's not being done just to provoke a reaction from the audience, but it's a real moral choice that our character is having to make that he then has to deal with the consequences of. And this performance from Bruce right here, which is just beautiful, I think, um, is part of what helps helps sell that. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely something that we were talking about from the very beginning and we were all very nervous about and that was good I think I think that energy led to us paying a lot of attention as to how we handled it and making sure that we were uh you know giving that moment kind of the 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 respect that it that it needed there's a weird thing that I found in the cutting though is interesting um you know this in my mind was always the moment where the audience's moral compass is supposed to start turning back against old joe uh and it's really hard to get an audience to not trust Bruce Willis. Um, we found that when we started showing the movie, it was funny. People would, you know, initially that moment where he actually shoots him, we played it much more surreal and we, we didn't really hear the gunshot and it was just much more light and um, not light, but we just kind of didn't hit it as heavy. And we realized people were, you know, we people were not significantly starting to question Bruce. They were saying, well, he, he has a reason for doing it. And so we found we actually had to lean on that moment harder and harder and show a little bit more kind of the violence of it, uh, make it even a little bit more horrible so that, uh, you know, so that audiences would, would, would question, uh, question Bruce Willis. You want to trust Bruce Willis. It's something you just want to do. I really liked lighting-wise what Steve did in this, where it's kind of the dim side of a sunset that's happening on the other side of the house. And then when Sarah goes back into the house in a moment here, we have that beautiful flare shot of her or where you actually see where the sun is at. Um, but it was nice because it meant we could light this side of it and start shooting earlier. We kind of isolated this whole thing and, and, and was able to light this. Um, so we kind of got sort of a magic houry type effect shielded by the house here, and then, uh, uh, but we're able to actually shoot it for more than twenty minutes.
So Pierce Gagnon, uh, again, five years old, and he would sit down and do a three-page dialogue scene like with Joe and Emily and hold his own. But the more amazing thing, if you look at him here, look at him looking at Emily and listening to her, and that is much more incre- – that's really where if you watch his whole performance and think, wow, that's a great child performance, it's less about his line delivery. I think it's more about the fact that he's he's actually listening to the actor who's in front of him. That's That's – that's real acting. Um, this transition here was something that uh, I'm really glad worked because it was hard to explain on set. <laughs> it kind of was this surreal thing we were doing where this child's hand comes in out of nowhere, and it was tough to to kind of explain. And then when we cut it together and it worked, I was I was very relieved. Um, I think everyone thought I was a little crazy. Uh this is – I know this is one of Joe's favorite scenes in the movie, and um, it's kind of the first time that Pierce – you really get to see exactly what we've got with Pierce. And again, it's – you know, I th- Joe started acting around the same age that Pierce did. Pierce is five, and Joe started acting when he was about six, and, uh, and he, he – Joe has always said to me that, you know – adults have this idea that you have to trick little kids into giving a performance um and there are kids that can act the same way that are that there are adults who can act and i was lucky to work with two of them to work with uh zachary gordon and max records and brothers bloom and they were tremendous um to work with pierce who was five and to see that same thing where he would actually be engaged in the scene and listening and and not just saying the lines the way that his mom told him to say the lines. I mean, that's he he was doing what an actor does, and I kind of saw what Joe was talking about looking at Pierce. Um, and again, totally normal kid. He's he's going to be fine. And in between takes, it, it wasn't like he was a fifty year old man in a kid's body. In between takes, he wasn't like in a sweater vest smoking a pipe off on the side of set in between takes. He was he was a five-year-old. He was running around, hitting people in the shin with swords, uh, trying to kiss Emily. You know, he was he was a healthy five-year-old kid. But when the cameras are on, he just had this ability to click in and just uh, connect with the other actor. It's pretty amazing. Scary. It's fine. So the Hummer here was originally was supposed to drive through in clear frame. This is a mistake. Its wheel caught there and smashed, and it actually broke its axle. <laughs> and uh, we we had the camera on the remote head, so nobody was in danger. But it was kind of like a scary moment, which gave way to a "Wow, did we get that on film?" moment. It's pretty cool. Here again is some tremendous work by Atomic Fiction on. Uh, this is actually something we shot in the top level of a burnout skyscraper in New Orleans, but then they digitally manipulated it uh, in order to make it look like a uh, some of that stuff in the background to make it look a little more broken down. So this was a scene that, that I was mentioning before where, where Emily messed up her arm, and she actually she took this chopping really seriously. She, she wanted to look like she knew what she was doing when she was chopping. So she... 
like months before we shot, she had a a huge like stump, wood stump delivered to like her house in Hollywood and put like in the backyard. And I like to just imagine like <laughs> like her 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 backyard next to the pool, you know. John Krasinski is like lounging by the pool and she's sitting there. This is my fantasy. This is what I think. John's there like in his silver speedo and she's uh chopping away at this at this big gnarly stump. Uh and uh so she practiced and she practiced and practiced and got it down to the point where she could really chop that thing. Um unfortunately, we just did it over and over and over again and it it she started getting more and more intense with it when she got into the story and it really did mess up her shoulder. She was in a lot of pain for the rest of the shoot. But she was a trooper. This was actually the first dialogue scene we shot with Pierce, and I remember so vividly after the first take on Pierce's side, looking up from the monitor and the whole crew, their jaws were just on the floor. It was like one of those moments where everyone was just like, wow, what, what have we got with this kid? This is really something. It's interesting too, instead of a lot of times, you know, with especially with kids, you'll take it piece by piece. Like I said before, Pierce was not like that at all. It was very, very different. He would actually go through the entire scene, but you would get like maybe three takes of the entire scene, and then he would start to get fidgety, and he would start to kind of lose it a little bit and get tired because he's five. And so uh, it was an exact opposite thing where sometimes little kids, it can take a lot of time because you're going back over and making sure you have every piece. With Pierce, he would give you three incredible takes, and you would have your scene, and then that would be it. So, um, which is actually fantastic, also because when you're dealing with a five-year-old, uh, because of very good and uh, very uh, very proper union laws, which are very good things, uh, you can't have that much shooting time with someone who's five. There's only a couple hours a day that we could actually work with them. So the fact that it went fairly quick when he was on set was was actually really important. We did a lot of finessing with this part to try and figure out how far to push it, how much to suggest a sense of power and just get we put added a little bit of camera shake after the fact just at the last moment but the notion is that she kind of diffuses it by getting out of the room and he he calms down and this was something where I, I didn't really know if this was going to work until we started putting it in front of audiences this weird moment of her going into the safe and then it paying off later um but I think it plays nicely as just kind of a uh, you know a tease uh, of what's to come. There's also, if you sharp eyes will notice, um, uh, action figures with hats in the background. They're vaguely reminiscent of uh, 
of the Rainmaker's men. Just like little weird details we put back there. This took a few takes because I think Pierce didn't want to get into this position because he felt like it made him look like too much of a little kid. <laughs> he kept trying to be <laughs> a little more, a little more manly, but finally we said, I'd "Be a little kid." Uh, this was a, a housing project in uh, New Orleans that we shot at, which I believe is no longer there at least they told us that it was about to be um about to be raised so it was after this scene that we originally had the thing where he went to throw his guns away the notion being that he couldn't when he realizes that there's this horrible horrible coincidental twist of fate and it is Susie's daughter she he can't do it and so that's originally where that scene went and we just kind of realized in the cutting process it uh it wasn't necessary enter Garrett Dillahunts. Uh, Garrett, who a lot of people probably know from uh, the very funny show Raising Hope, uh, <laughs> was also in uh, Deadwood. Uh, and he was so good that they actually had him play one role in season one, and then they brought him back to play an entirely different role <laughs> in another season. He's uh, He's one of the best actors out there, and he's the type of guy who just is in a bunch of stuff if you keep your eyes open for him. He had a beautiful scene with uh, Brad Pitt in uh, in a uh, Jesse James movie, in um, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, and it's, it's, uh, he's just one of those guys who just knocks it out of the park every time. And Noah Segan had... had suggested that I, I take a look at him for this part and I'm so thankful that he was able to come out and do it he just plays this kind of ambiguous line where you're not sure exactly where he's coming from and it's it's vaguely threatening without being being bad guyish. he manages to get this kind of vulnerability that shot of Emily is another example of the up close on a wide angle lens that I found we could get away with these animal with these anamorphic lenses I think we had to digitally paint out Joe's shadow on the wall after he disappeared there because you could still see some movement back there and Jesse would have caught it. Uh, Sarah is lying there about his age because she knows that they're looking for a kid with that birthday who's actually like five. And so she's... Uh, 
She is lying, saying he's 10. This is a weird moment I came up with on set, this drinking of the water. And I, it just felt like a bizarre kind of unsettling moment that he takes the time to do this. But then poor Garrett had to drink like 18 glasses of water. I felt really bad for him. Uh, the phones are a very subtle thing. They're they're, but I'm I'm really proud of them. They're these things that kind of, I think they were just they fold out to any size and shape that you want, um, and then we just added a very subtle graphic to them, uh, but they still don't get reception. I realized when we were editing it, just because I like low angles, we we're looking at Emily's butt quite a lot. Sorry, Emily. Uh, and I also, I wish I could remember what I said to Pierce to get him to make this face. Suddenly he turns into Joe Pesci. <laughs> Suddenly he turns into a 50-year-old man. Like, you want to shoot this guy? I don't know how he did that. We had to play with the sound here to figure out exactly how quiet to make Pierce in the background. And I think we actually we added a line previous, like a little earlier in this scene to establish that she had lied to him, that they were in the city, uh, so that you knew where the tension was coming from. And then again, this just sounds like a big advertising for the DVD. I apologize, but mwahahaha. But the, again, there was an additional tag on this scene where originally the door creaks here and Jesse appears, and then he basically makes Sarah take him down into the basement to hunt for the two of them. And um, there was a really nice scene between uh, between uh, Sarah and Jesse, between Emily and, and Garrett, um, which, uh, which you can see on the Blu-ray. So this is uh, Pierce's dialogue and the stuff where he's freaking out and, and screaming and all the big angry stuff is, is really incredible. But this is the scene that always amazes me when I'm watching his performance because um, this scene is mostly him listening to Joe. And this is where you can really see, you know, he's he's in this, that's like a little set that we built and there's a camera two feet from his face and he's looking at this guy that, He's only known a few months who has this weird makeup on who's telling him this story that about this world that he's never actually experienced in real life. And, and through all of that, he's looking at him. You can just see in his eyes that he's listening to it and absorbing it. And um, that's just extraordinary to me. I mean, that's really that's, – that's a great actor. I also remember when we were shooting this because there was no room for me in that tiny little space – uh, I was and outside the sun was so bright. I was having a hard time seeing the monitor. And I remember, uh, just really not knowing whether we, like, I trusted the actors and I trusted that we got the scene, but, um, it wasn't until we got in the edit room that I, that I realized, wow, okay, we, we got something that works here. Then this little moment with the trap door here in my mind always kind of echoed back to, to Seth. 
And I remember we, we worked this music cue over and over and over again because initially it was tough riding a balance between going for a little bit of emotional swell without feeling over the top. Um, this and a moment that's coming up in a, mo in a moment were two of the musical cues that Nathan and I really finessed quite a bit. Um, Kid Blue playing detective. Uh, there's another great kid. There's a lot of kid blue scenes that we cut that just because a lot of the stuff that we did with Noah was kind of connective tissue that we found after the fact we didn't need. But there's a, a great scene where he kind of questions a, a cop that he knows and gets more information about where they spotted old Joe. Uh a journalist I spoke to who said she was she and her friends were going to start using "click the frog" as as code for a booty call text, which made me very very happy. I <laughs> uh, went back and forth a lot with uh, James, our props guy, about the look of these frogs. So they had to be just goofy enough looking, but not just absolutely ridiculous. And then there's this little Barden Fink moment here where you kind of hear, hear Joe coming through the house. Uh, this is the other musical cue that we had to finesse. It was interesting because it's it's... And it, 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 this scene to me was never about a love scene between or setting up a love story. For me, Joe's actions throughout the back half, throughout the back act of the movie are not motivated by him falling in love with Sarah. It's much more about him seeing himself in Sid. And so this is much more just two lonely people in a really kind of intense situation together. And she, you know. She hasn't had a real cigarette in a while. And so the, this score needed to be delicate, but we, we had to finesse it so that it didn't hint too much that it was like a love theme swelling. The other funny thing is that Joe's nose started coming off after a couple takes of them kissing. Uh, way to go, Emily. That shot, that first shot, was actually the last thing we shot when we were doing this scene. And uh, poor Emily had been smoking like a dozen cigarettes at that point and she was so ill of cigarettes and the very last thing we shot was supposed to be this thing where she was taking that first drag and enjoying it so much and uh, I, I said I'm sorry you just have to you gotta look like you enjoy you enjoy that cigarette even more I felt bad but I still made her do it uh that lighter again it was it was it was on a string and it was it was uh uh just kind of being being floated. I like this little quiet pause. I think we actually did this in order to skip over some dialogue that we ended up cutting, but I think that moment was really, really nice. Uh, our sound designer, uh, Jeremy Pearson, did, did terrific, really subtle work in this scene with the thunder and the rain in the background, which I'm now talking over. Sorry, Jeremy. There was always some discussion of ending this scene there. 
Um, he's a good kid. Yeah, he is. I fought really. I I was very insistent on keeping this back half of the scene, even though pacing wise, it's it's something you could make an argument for getting right to it with the end of the movie. But um, to me, this was always really essential. Hearing Emily's story here, hearing Sarah's story, and uh, to me, the, the whole end of the movie and Joe's choice, it's so much about. And and the hope and hopefully the redemption that comes at the end of it is is, is so much hinges on this. And I also just think Emily's uh, performance is so beautiful here. Um, Uh, the score here is just a very gentle piano version of our theme. And that's one thing that Nathan and I decided early on was, as opposed to Brick or Brothers Bloom, where we kind of had a different theme for each character. With this one, we decided we're just going to have one theme and we're going to do variations of that throughout the whole thing. So it's kind of the main the main looper theme that's kind of stretched and in, inverted and turned to major or minor, depending on the depending on the needs. All those cigarettes. So originally there was a, uh, originally there was dialogue between Bruce and Piper when Bruce busts into the door and originally it was intercut with this scene. We originally we slam cut to from the end of the bed scene at, at night to Bruce busting in the door, and uh, their dialogue was intercut with this, and we just found that it was much more effective to let this play out and then skip the dialogue and go straight into Bruce barreling past him. Garrett is also incredibly funny, and would just keep cracking Emily up. Yeah, it was kind of a problem. So the way we did this overhead shot is we had pads laid down and Pierce actually did that fall onto some pads and then we took the pads away digitally in there also. But that that meant that Pierce had to do – had to actually be up on the staircase. And there was a pad right there for him, but he was doing the fall back. And it was a, a really brave thing for him to do. Um, he had fun doing it, but it, I, I would have been freaked out. Uh, and this was uh, – this scene here is an example of just we spent two days getting tons of tiny little pieces and um, and you just kind of cross your fingers and pray when you get in the edit room that it all is going to snap together because you have it all. This was one of those things where I had it all storyboarded and it was just a matter of checking everything off the list and making sure we got it and then you put it all together in the edit room and and, uh, and make it all work.
the moment of Jesse exploding was something that we did a lot of work on effects-wise because I didn't want it to be gruesome. I wanted it to be weirdly beautiful just because I felt if it was gruesome, it would take the audience too out of it. It needed to be kind of like an oh shit moment, but not a oh gross moment. So we didn't want intestines flying out or anything. I, I think I kept describing it as a a rose opening in uh, blooming in, in time lapse. And that's kind of the visual cue I gave to the, uh, to the effects guys. <coughs> that image and a lot of this back Im- imagery is very much inspired by uh, Katsuhiro Otomo's work. Um, he did uh, Akira, but he also did a comic called Domu, which is uh, kids with telekinetic powers and, and has a lot of the same kind of primal imagery in it. This scene, I remember we worked with quite a bit and we eventually ended because it wasn't supposed to be them screaming at each other and we, we eventually got it up to that level and that's when it worked. It's the sort of thing where on set you kind of put something on its feet and figure out what it needs. At some point rehearsing it, we were like, wow, they, they really need to be angry. We need to pitch this way up here. Poor Pierce just hated having this sticky blood on his face. He just did not like it at all. And uh, and he was really just like, can I get this stuff off my face constantly? He really did not like it. So we had to shoot this very quickly. And I also had to smear blood on my face as well to <laughs> turn it into a game, get him to do it. With a lot of the darker stuff in the movie... In terms of context, I, I again, Pierce's mom is wonderful, and she's um, a terrific mom, and she's just great with him. And she, I, for a lot of the more delicate stuff in the movie, uh, I left it to her to to give him a context or a lack of context and tell him kind of what he needed in order to perform in the scenes, but not so much to where we are actually gonna, you know, actually gonna, gonna <laughs> freak him out with with the horrible things that were happening. And luckily a lot of the horrible things are effects stuff like with Jesse, like it's not like he knew that Jesse was going to be blowing up. That was a a post effect that we did. And here he was much more concerned with having this sticky stuff on his face than than thinking about thinking about the fact that it's blood or where it came from. comes my dad's big scene <laughs> here we go so this was my dad's favorite day It's funny, we, uh, my dad is really, really good in the scene, and I, I kept, in the edit room, I kept cutting around him, and Bob, our editor, was like, you're cutting around him because he's your dad, he's really good, just <laughs> trust his performance. Sorry, Dad. 
this was another sequence where it was just about grabbing a bunch of pieces that we had storyboarded and then and then making it all making it all work uh having bruce willis around when you're doing an action scene though helps significantly (laughs) because bruce really knows how to do it that's great performance by that stunt guy right there that's that's that was a really good fall It's funny, this sequence, originally it was a much more elaborate thing. There was a lot more business with him going through the back uh, alleyway here and kind of shooting everyone up. And originally there was a thing where he stabbed a guy in the face and like all this other gruesome stuff. And we decided making it kind of more of a short, cathartic punch. And hopefully the audience kind of feels what Bruce is feeling here, which is, you know, there's kind of like a a rush of finally I have some bad guys to shoot, which... um, is completely wrong and awful, but hopefully you're in Bruce's like just kind of push forward in the moment of he's uh, in that moment. There's kind of like this rush of finally here's here's something that I can just blast my way through without any kind of moral ambiguity. Even if there is a moral ambiguity to it, he he doesn't feel it in that moment. Bruce really loved doing this. I was afraid to, I was like, oh God, am I going to have to be afraid to ask him to put all this blood on his face? And, and he handed me the open bottle and he like sat down on a, on this sheet of plastic and he's like, all right, Ryan, do it. And I just dumped all the blood on his, all over his head. It was great. One of those moments. Uh, so we make a pretty obvious choice here and not show Jeff Daniels death. And that was to, from my perspective, just storytelling wise, I wanted this, I wanted his death to us to see it through kid blues eyes. I wanted us to see it and to feel that kind of lack of any kind of satisfaction at all, even tragic satisfaction. Um, you know, uh, let's try something here. Let's see if there's anyone else in the audience who is listening to this in theater commentary. I'm going to say three, two, one, and then cough if you're listening to it. And let's see if anyone else in the theater coughs. Three, two, one. <clears throat> and then Noah reacts to the cough. He said, did anyone cough? No, it's all right. It's just me and you, buddy. Some nice detail work of the city on the background there. Fire effects, guys. Looks a bit like Oz. In the editing, one thing that we found with this scene was I tended to err on the side of staying distant from Bruce for that open, for when he's shouting at the beginning, which seemed to work a lot better playing it kind of from Joe's perspective. We wanted to keep the audience kind of in Joe's head for this section of it. Uh, this showdown, this kind of Western showdown between the two of them, this was some of the last effects work that we completed. And so it was tough screening the movie for test audiences because this sequence was always very unfinished and always looked kind of goofy 
Um, and so it was one of those things where I was never really sure if it was going to totally work until we got it all done. Uh, for the bike, we, I didn't again. I didn't want to just green screen it. And so the way we actually did it for those wide shots was, we had a truck with the bike um, on a pole that came off the truck, and the actor would actually ride on the bike. And then we actually just painted out the truck in post production. So the actor is on the bike in that environment speeding down the street there's our little crop duster there seen Scene at rest. Um, this was tricky coming up here where uh, where they're hanging upside down because it was something we couldn't actually do with the actors. We had to figure out a way to fake it. This we 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 actually this was fun. We actually uh, had kind of a cannon inside the 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 truck's hood and it shot a piston down into the ground that launched the truck up into the air like that uh, and then we painted the piston out in post so that it's like these shots we couldn't actually hang sit upside down in the truck and so we had the, the wardrobe guys put a wire underneath his his clothes so that it would stand up and then we actually just shot him and flipped it upside down and, and kind of cut it so that it would work North by Northwest here. Uh, the detail of the birds on the horizon was something I had storyboarded, and we there's a little visual detail that we put together in post production. Uh, all of these effects in the field here. We spent a lot of time finessing. We had a great effects company for specifically this sequence called Scanline, and they're based in, in Munich. And um, those poor guys just like for months and months were staring at dirt clods and blades of grass. As we would say, that one looks fake, this one looks fake. Can we adjust that? And one by one, we just kind of finessed it until I, 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 we got it all looking really, really great. Um, or they got it all looking really, really great. They just did tremendous work. And here's Sid. Uh, again, though, I didn't want to just green screen the actors up here, so we actually had these massive cranes out in the middle of this field. And, especially, and for these wide shots, we actually hung the actors. Like here, they're actually hanging in the air from these big cranes in the middle of the field. And then Jeremy Pearson did some fantastic sound work to kind of give the sense of the shape of all that.
Yeah, that Nathan's music and Emily's performance are really that's one of those moments where I was like, we have to. It's so essential that it lands. We were out in this field for about a week shooting this, and we were just getting baked by the sun the whole week. And, uh, but even so, we were really lucky it didn't rain that week, or we would have just been in a big mud lake. Um, and this bit was another kind of scene of just getting a bunch of pieces. This was definitely a storyboard heavy sequence. And then this voiceover was a very late addition, actually. Up until the final edits of the film, this played clean. Uh, and then it, it was it wasn't so much a clarity thing, it was more it was more an emotional thing. It was just wanting something to kind of tie the whole thing together emotionally and feel have that feeling of a circle being completed. And so I remember writing writing this and emailing it to Joe and saying, what do you think of this? And he really responded well to it. And, and so we laid it in, and I, I, think it, uh, I think it does really, really add something to it. And it feels like because the beginning was voiceover, it makes sense. And then the one little reshoot that we did was uh, we just picked up this shot of Bruce reacting to that shot. And then we actually had to finesse the way that he disappeared there um, because him snapping off there felt too abrupt. Uh, we we've d decided in that moment that we had to had to kind of fade him out a little bit there and give it a little bit more softness. Uh, this final music cue by Nathan I just think is absolutely gorgeous. This is... Uh, Definitely my favorite cue in the whole score. The ending never changed. The ending was written like this from the very first draft of the script, and uh, meaning that Joe, you know, kills himself at the end. And that was, you know, that along with Bruce shooting the kid, that was the other thing that got the most discussion. And again, rightly so, because it's it's. It's a tricky ending to to pull off and have it feel satisfying. It's something we just had to pay a lot of attention to, and, and so many of the decisions we made through the course of the whole movie were aimed at getting that ending to land. We always knew that we kind of had to start there and back up, figure out how to really earn that and make it feel uh, not just like a... Uh, you know, not just like a, a a clever end to a puzzle, but we had to really bring it to a place of of hope and uh, of emotional catharsis. Emily's performance in these final couple shots, I think, are just uh, really beautiful. And and for the hand in his hair, again, we we had Emily there to actually do it, which is, is really important. At various points, I'd wondered about having that 
final shot of her closing the watch be the very last shot in the whole movie. But that felt a little more... It felt like I would be doing that just to have it be kind of clever. It felt better to go for the emotion. And also this shot, in my mind, was always the last shot of the movie. Originally it just cut to black from that shot. But again, in the cutting process, I realized that, you know, the movie is really ending on Sid. It makes sense to take it out with him. Rapturous applause. I don't know if you can hear me over the applause in the theater right now. I'll, I'll probably have to, you'll probably have to crank the volume. But, uh, and I doubt you can see the screen because people are rising to their feet and cheering. But <clears throat> I'll, we'll, we'll muscle through it here. Uh, thank you guys for listening to this uh, to this bizarre in theater commentary track. I hope it was hope it was informative. I hope it wasn't just uh, pulling the the curtain back from the wizard. Um, uh, and I hope you dug it. Uh, I will I will talk you out. Go ahead and be careful as you're exiting the theater. Um, I always like to take my trash with me to bust my own trash. As someone who worked as a theater usher in high school, uh, I always appreciate it when uh, theater patrons throw their own stuff out. Because for God's sake, your mother does not work here. Uh I, I would I would help you find your car, but I'm I, I, I honestly can't remember where you parked. You're on your own for that. Uh, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna let you enjoy this song. This song is a, a song that I uh, had in my head while I, that I kind of discovered while uh, we were in pre-production, and I sent an MP3 of it to Bruce right after he agreed to come on and do the movie, and I was like, this is kind of you know the movie, and. Uh, so this song had been in my head while I was listening to it over and over while we were shooting. This and a lot of Sam Cooke, something about that soulfulness that I really wanted that to be kind of infused in the movie. And uh, so taking it out with this, this is Chuck and Mac, uh, Powerful Love. It's uh, it's off uh, the the Numero label has a uh, the Numero label has a, has a series called um, Eccentric Soul, and it's a bunch of kind of defunct soul labels that they've done compilations of and it's absolutely fantastic stuff every single record on that whole series is great um this one is off one called uh twine nights uh lunar rotation and uh, highly recommended uh that's it i'm gonna shut up now uh get out of here go 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 god forbid you've gone to the bathroom right after this and you're listening to me while peeing right now that would be so disturbing so i'm gonna stop talking so that you can go and pee without me uh, in your head. This is disgusting. This is the worst way possible to end this. Goodbye. See you. Bye. Thanks, guys.